All right, guys, thanks for coming on to Mac Emerge podcast for another COVID special episode. My name is Kevin Dong, as you guys may know. And I have a special episode today. And I'm going to be honest, it's the first time having five people record all at once together. So this is, this is a great, great experience for everybody and hope it really, really works for everybody. So I have five uh, or four awesome guests on who are simulation experts and have been working very, very hard in the last uh, few weeks to help our teams from both the St. Joseph's Hospital uh, in Hamilton, as well as the Hamilton Health Sciences to prepare for the COVID uh, epidemic or slash pandemic during these rough times in our eMERGE departments. So before we go on, I'm going to get all these amazing gentlemen to introduce themselves. So let's start with uh, Alex Chorley. Hey guys, I'm uh, Alex Chorley. I'm an emergency physician who works at the Hamilton Health Sciences, as well as McMaster Children's Hospital. I'm an assistant clinical professor in the Division of Emergency Medicine, Department of Medicine at McMaster University. And I'm also the director of continuing professional development for emergency medicine at McMaster, with some heavy involvement in simulation in the FRCPC Emergency Medicine Residency Program, uh, as well as involvement in the in situ simulation for Hamilton Health Sciences. So my name is Sean Mondu. I'm an assistant uh, professor at uh, McMaster. I work at uh, St. Joe's Healthcare Hamilton, which is an academic health science center in Hamilton, Ontario. My role there is safety uh, and quality lead in the emergency department. And so I kind of come to this whole simulation front as a modality of, of having some element of a safety assessment, or at least a recognition of where our current state is in safety. Uh, in the department and then and then using the simulation lens to drive some of the quality care we were providing in the context of COVID. Hi, I'm Michael Ha. I'm a emergency physician at St. Joe's uh, in Hamilton, as well as McKenzie and Joseph Brandt Hospital. I'm also an assistant professor at McMaster University. I've got involved with the simulation since the pandemic, mostly with the aspect of introducing virtual simulation in our environment of trying to preserve PPE and limit exposure to, to uh, COVID-19. So my name is Chris Hyde. I'm an emergency physician and trauma team leader at Hamilton Health Sciences. I'm recently uh, taken on a new role as program director for our FR residency simulation program. And I've been involved for the last couple of years with residency uh, education through simulation and in-situ simulation in the departments. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks, uh, gentlemen, for your uh, time and expertise today. So we have a few questions that uh, we prepared uh, so that uh, our listeners can grab some great clinical and CRM pearls for the COVID-19 simulation for our emergency departments. Whoever's listening, make sure you have your pens and papers so that we can get started. The first question I have for you guys is, tell me what you guys are doing at your local institutions for simulation and what you are doing in those places to prepare for the COVID-19 pandemic. So uh, Hamilton Health Sciences had been running in-situ simulations for the past year, uh, usually about one per month at each of the different clinical sites. And uh, unfortunately, those had to grind to a halt rather abruptly because uh, we couldn't have involvement with standardized patients anymore. And the Center for Simulation-Based Learning uh, wasn't doing any outreach programs once the pandemic really hit. Um, Prior to that happening, we were fortunate to be able to get, I think, two simulations done where we were testing our negative pressure rooms and our availability of PPE and what our kind of just general procedure was going to be for 
uh, triaging and assessing patients with uh, suspected COVID. So once we no longer had support outside of our just local providers, we had to switch to doing some in-situ simulations that were uh, more minimal resourced, I guess. We had uh, really just a mannequin that we used for the, um, the FR program and then a few people that were sim savvy. And so we started trying to identify latent safety threats related to our preparedness. So using our negative pressure rooms that weren't conventionally set up for resuscitation, that's where we were going to start running protected intubations and, uh, and code blues. And so we had to trial those rooms to see how we were going to communicate in them. Um, did all of our equipment fit in there? Did we have um, the right teams going in and staying on the outside? Uh, and so that's what we've been doing uh, initially. And now that we've identified a lot of those latent safety threats, we've moved on to testing the new processes that have been developed. So the new protocols for a protected intubation or a protected code blue, uh, as well as testing new equipment like intubation boxes and drapes. It's really been an evolving process for our simulations. Like, uh, Alex said, we started with um, just looking at these new spaces and some of these new processes, but we found that um, we had to go back and repeat simulations as new directives were coming out of our administration. So if a new directive on PPE came out, then we found we had to go back and test that new that new directive to uh, look for new latent safety threats or look for new processes around that. And so we were also doing education and training at the same time. So some of our early sims, I think, got a little bit muddled because we didn't know if we were checking for like latent safety threats or for doing education and with changing processes, it can be challenging to test multiple things at the same time. And so I think that as we went through our process, we found that we could refine the simulations a little bit more in what our objective exactly was. And as we've all experienced in the pandemic, we're getting these changing direction and guidelines and that sort of came out in the simulation as well. And so once we had clear guidelines for the department, it, it made the simulation and training much easier. But I think we were learning as we were going on as well. Awesome. Let's move on to some of our St. Joe's crew. Mike, do you have anything to say about that first question? For sure. I think, uh, you know, Alex and Chris, you identified very early kind of the issues we had as well. We kind of approached a little bit differently from the get-go. We did run our first virtual simulation in situ when volumes were down and we had open rooms. And we actually videotaped it. Uh, that allowed us to kind of do it virtually to get the information out to our docs, at least in group meetings right away. So we've been running, well, Eric's actually, Eric Hanover was in charge of most of this. And I've certainly assisted with him since the beginning. Uh, we've actually been able to update things pretty quickly with meetings. We've been running kind of virtual simulations with physicians uh, ad hoc when they were when they had time. Uh, that was, uh, I guess, the benefit of having it as opposed to in situ, I guess, with this time. It's difficult to gather everyone in the same spot, you know, given what's happened. And, uh, you know, you guys mentioned great points about things evolving, uh, you know, every day, every kind of couple of hours, things change, right? So the benefits I think we had doing it virtually is I think we've been able to uh, kind of disseminate the information pretty quickly. And, and we tell people things are evolving as, as we go and move along in this process uh, in, this, in this pandemic. We just basically taped a, a, 
basic inside true sim and then basically ran over it with all our docs initially. And then we've been modifying things as we add other things uh, that we've been doing. So uh, that's, that's kind of helped us in terms of at least getting the information out quickly because it's very difficult in this time where uh, we don't have, you know, all of us together in one room for meetings anymore. Absolutely. I think that's a really cool initiative that we've been hearing about during this pandemic, considering the the physical limitations. I think that's going to be one of our following questions. So for the listeners, stay tuned for how to get that uh, sorted and just kind of learning about the nitty gritties. Sean, do you have anything to add to the the first question there? Yeah. So like many of the others, we're, we're using simulation in a way that allows us to experiment kind of with the broader realities of having a new type of patient in the department. I think we're also using simulation to refine very specific skills or procedures uh, like protected intubations. But the other element is kind of the human element that I'm really interested in, in exploring, um, how this helps us assess and deal and manage our own anxieties around uh, dealing with these patients, how it normalizes the different procedures like donning and doffing that we're going to have to do on a daily basis, how it allows us to assess and deal with uh, protocol fatigue and how the human elements of communication are kind of modified by the realities that are imposed by COVID. That's kind of my big interest in, um, in simulation. Absolutely. That sounds like amazing pearls from all of you guys. I mean, to me, it's kind of like a dress rehearsal in a way, just to get your reps in, make sure you practice and not just with the physicians, but I feel like with all the the other healthcare workers that we work very closely with uh, who are integral to making sure their patients are safe, like our our RTs and our nurses. So I think this has been a great uh, experience for all the physicians at all the sites. So thank you all for um, taking so much of your time to organize these simulations. So let's start with the Joe's guys now. Let's flip back. So what are, I mean, we talked a little bit about the the base, the the general pearls, but what are some specific pearls, both either clinical or CRM or institutional that you've learned that you'd like to share with uh, our broad audience today? So let's start with Sean. I mean, my focus will be, would be mostly around communication here. I think the patient safety literature is relatively clear that, you know, the biggest contributor to adverse events in the clinical setting is failures of communication. and. I think we shouldn't think that the whole experience around COVID is going to change that reality in a meaningful way. Uh, in fact, I think we'll probably have some new barriers in the way of, of communication in the age of COVID that are, that are unique, things like um, negative pressure rooms, antechambers, um, communicating through masks, and in some situations, respirators, depending on you know what the PPE status of certain places look like. And having very clear lines of communication, you know, our nursing colleagues at Joe's are very excited to be part of this whole simulation uh, activity. In fact, they're, they're some of the biggest drivers, them and, and RT, to, to push for more. Um, and, and they've been huge advocates for formalized communication around how we do this. And so we're using a, a variety of, of different modalities to test that out. You know, some of the old vintage call bell systems in some rooms work and in other rooms, it's, you know, baby monitors that have been improvised and that allow us to, to communicate. In other rooms, it's, you know, Bluetooth connected media that allow us to actually video through. Uh, and then as we continue to conduct simulations, we're kind of landing on a model that allows us to communicate in a more effective way. Not only the technology we're using, but, you know, more insistence on closed loop, uh, more insistence on a reduced menu of options in the way of intubation meds or post intubation sedation or standardized equipment that comes in. And so really we're trying to make the communication 
reliable. We're trying to minimize options for communication and trying to make it uh, more high yield. Perfect. That's amazing. Excellent pearls. Mike, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think uh, Sean brings up some very good points. I think it's also different now that, uh, you know, all of us doing these simulations, some of the docs have an idea how it's supposed to be done, but many of the peripheral staff don't have a clear idea. So, you know, what we've also been doing is, you know, we've been taking each shift, at least one of us who is available, tries to run through the nurse and the RTs in terms of the process we've come with, because it seems very fragmented at many times. That's the other issue with not being able to all get together and kind of, you know, run things through with everyone. I think it's uh, at times a little bit fragmented getting everyone on board. Uh, the other probe we've kind of done is many of the docs we've been doing sims basically run the nurses they're going to be with on shift, at least through what the process is and what we've kind of decided a bit as a group. And, and things change, right? That's the other thing. We run it just as a walkthrough. I mean, with the PPE limitations, we're all kind of stressed and, you know, uh, uncomfortable uh, at this time, right? So uh, I think having those walkthrough with the peripheral staff is the RTs, nurses, everyone on board certainly has made uh, some of them much more comfortable. So every shift before I start, I ask my nurses who are in acute care, who's going to be doing the PPE uh, intubations, who's going to be the COVID code person. And then we, if they haven't done one or haven't walked through it, we go through it, right, as a group. And we see even some of the senior residents now that we're walking them through it, they, they, uh, they're getting a better sense of what this actually involves. So I think as much as virtual sim has helped in disseminating things, I think the next part what we've done is actually translated to kind of insight through walkthroughs uh, to get everyone on board. That's a really cool idea. And I'm going to definitely take that with me as well. Uh, Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the steps that you've been working on and some pearls that we have from the uh, Hamilton Health Sciences Group? Yeah, I was thinking along the same lines as uh, Mike was. We work with these other professionals and every group has their own educational process. So the residents have a process, the staff physicians have a process, the nurses have a process, the RTs have a process, but those have all been individual silos. And what we're talking about now is like, how does the team work together safely and efficiently? Because we're doing these simulations for the protected intubations, for the protected code blues, all highly team-based. What we're trying to do is pare down the team as much as possible. So we're putting higher demands on each team member and like Sean said, communication is vital when you have such a pared down team. And so we're running into problems where we had traditionally these siloed approaches to education for each different professional. And now we're trying to bring that all together into the simulation that's bringing the team together and working on the team. And we've traditionally not had any kind of education system that did that together because of Dr. Kyla Kaner's previous in-situ work, we do have, I think, a little bit more familiarity at Hamilton Health Sciences with some of the educators working together. So the nurse educator and the RT educator and having a bit of familiarity with each other. And so for this process with our COVID intubation teams and in-situ simulations, um, right from the beginning, we have had all the professional educators come together. I think it's great. At times it can be a little bit unwieldy because everyone still has different processes about how they disseminate their information, how uh, they have to take that up 
So our nurse educator has to go to the the head of nursing before they can disseminate um, a new protocol or no information. So, you know, we can be having this great experience in the simulation, but then for that to get distributed to the other nurses throughout the department has to go through a separate process. And I think bringing all those educators together is very important when you're working on a team-based process or team-based exercise. And I think ongoing, there will be room for improvement in some of those processes about how we push out the education and how we make sure that all the different professionals are getting the same message um, and breaking down some of those barriers between the different uh, uh, educational silos. Absolutely. And for our listeners who may have heard Dr. Kyla Kaner's name before, she's been on a podcast episode with us for uh, her topic on imposter syndrome. So check the previous episodes out for uh, that because she dropped some amazing pearls on that as well. Alex, you want to finish off with that last question? Any clinical CRM pearls institutional for uh, HHS? Yeah, absolutely. I think I just want to echo um, a couple of things that have already been said. I think when we come into work uh, during this time, you can really feel the anxiety uh, floating around amongst uh, the physicians, the nurses, the RTs, everyone in the department is just on edge. And as we talked about, there's like a million different protocols floating around and it seems like things change on an almost daily basis. I think that one of the best things that have come out of doing these simulations is that it really does help decrease um, providers' anxiety. I feel like everyone feels a little bit more confident afterwards and realizes that the things that we're practicing are things that we do every day at work. We're just doing them a little bit differently and we have a little bit of a different focus. And so I think once people have actually run through a simulation of a protected code blue or a protected intubation, uh, then they feel like, yes, this is something that we're familiar with. It's just a different process than we normally take and it's a different speed than we normally do. So I think that's been really helpful at just making our staff feel more comfortable overall. And uh, I really agree with Chris that we previously previously been working in silos when it comes to education. Uh, and now that we're trying to onboard um, teams, which are changing every day um, to the same process, I think it's incredibly important that uh, we coordinate with our educational colleagues uh, from nursing and RT as well, so that we're all pushing out the same message and we're all um, giving the same answers to the questions that staff have, just so that there is minimal confusion. All right. Thanks, guys. So next question would be, and this is something that I think everyone is also very eager to listen to, is what are some major challenges you have found with doing these simulations? I mean, some of them have been said already, but... uh, and. Specifically, what are some of the main clinical challenges you've also noticed as well? I think communication was definitely a part of that. But maybe let's start with uh, Chris Hyde. So one of the major challenges is just finding the space and the time and the staff to do these. You know, when we're doing in-situ simulation, the goal is to make it as realistic as possible in the normal clinical setting. Early on in this pandemic, our volumes have been lower and there's been more space and opportunity and the staff has been a little more available we've noticed as we've gone on and things have picked up a bit it's been increasingly difficult to continue running them in the department one day we basically had to cancel the session because we didn't have any free space or free clinical staff i think it's important to be flexible and just run with the department you have when you get there and 
trying to do these and just coming enthusiastically, but also realizing that nurses, docs, RTs are already stressed and busy and you have to be a little bit targeted in in getting people involved. Uh, that said, uh, even if, if staff are busy, I've, what we've seen is they feel better after having done the simulation. And so when you come into the department, I think being sensitive, but also being enthusiastic and giving people the opportunity to experience the simulation and the chance to just run through it in a low stakes setting and just stressing that, that this is a good place to try things out and make mistakes because you'll feel better when you get into the real uh, situation. Okay. That, those are excellent pearls for sure. Michael? Uh, I, I think, you know, everyone here has made some good points. Uh, I think the stress factor for all the staff is definitely a big, a big issue. You know, I think most of us with these simulations are, you know, try to re- alleviate some of our concerns and our staff's concerns. I think especially with our peripheral staff, like the nurses and the RTs, you know, I think they feel not as protected almost in a sense. So for us to run these simulations with them and walk them through it, I think it gives them a little bit of more information. Uh, I think a lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there that's, you know, scary, not necessarily all true. You know, and the other factor is, you know, getting people together to discuss these and and modify things as we go along. Uh, You know, we try to do simulations so that people know exactly what to do, but in the reality of Emerge, many times it never goes the way it does. So, you know, at our stage, I think leadership and being calm for our staff, I think makes a a huge difference uh, within the department. And uh, I think the more they walk through it, the more experience they get, many of them will feel a bit more comfortable, right? It's really not much different than what we've done in the past. It's just a little bit of different thinking and how we approach what we normally have been doing. So, Absolutely. Uh, Sean and Charles, Alex, do you have anything to add to any challenges? I do have one challenge that we've we faced when trying to run these simulations is how to balance the need to conserve PPE with the need for staff to practice in the PPE that they're going to be working in, especially around communication and proper donning and doffing. So one way that we uh, were able to, to do that effectively, I think, early on was to have staff um, don and doff the full PPE that they'd be using for aerosol generating medical procedures, but to keep it afterwards because a lot of those pieces were disposable. So we would grab um, a clear patient belonging bag and have them doff into that so that then they could use that PPE for their next clinical shift rather than just wasting it. Because I think it's incredibly important that staff know how to put on the protective equipment effectively because it's not something that we're used to doing in our regular clinical practice and having team members practice a safety officer watching everyone doff their equipment and looking for any breaches i think is incredibly valuable absolutely those are great pearls for the next question let's try to divide the answers to two separate groups. Uh, The reason is that uh, I believe that protected intubation and protected code blues are similar but different. So Evan, if you guys have thoughts on either or, uh, please do so. I think that's that's great. The more pearls, the better. But just uh, for the sake of the flow, I think to try to divide this up a little bit. Alex, 
Do you want to talk a little bit about protected intubation and how you guys have been preparing for that and any pearls or thoughts about that in terms of simulation that you've uh, learned from at least your group? Absolutely. So I think the um, early on, it was uh, a pretty big challenge because there was a lot of information floating around about how we should be doing things and a lot of uh, conflicting information as well. And so I think early on, um, trying to nail out a protocol um, for our institution based on the best expert opinion and evidence that was out there was was important. And I think the protocol we settled on uh, does look pretty similar to uh, the one at St. Joe's and the one at most um, academic centers around the country. So developing that so that we had a clear reference point um, for people to practice from was important. And then um, actually getting into the department and running through it to figure out where the barriers were and the latent safety threats were so that we could amend it. And I think that we're now on version six of our protocol because of all that feedback that we got during the Insight Chief simulations. Um, I think the most important part um, that we identified for running a protected code blue is the pre-brief because it takes a lot longer than normal to get geared up and to get into the room. Um, and as we previously discussed, communication is so challenging when you've got N95 masks or respirators on, and especially if you're in a room with a HEPA filter, and there's a lot of barriers to communicating to the team that's outside the room as well. So the more you can nail down the plan and gather all the equipment you need before going into the room with all of your PPE on, the smoother things will run in the room itself. And there's less need then to actually communicate to the outside room. So I think spending the time, uh, slowing it down, making sure everyone's got everything they need and making sure that everyone knows what the intubation plan A, plan B, and plan C is, uh, is incredibly important and uh, really minimizes the need to have um, a lot of back and forth to your outside team once you're actually in there. For sure. Sean, do you have any to add to that for protected uh, intubations? Yeah, I- once again, I, th- I think this this idea of prioritizing staff is hugely valuable um, and, and recognizing that they're going to be limited resources, especially if this goes on for a significant number of months, which, which may be a probability in, in much of the modeling. Um, and to use simulation to try to, you know, develop some safe adjuncts to care. Uh, we have been playing with with some covering of, of the head and neck of the patient with boxes, uh, with trying to figure those elements out and using sim as, as a way that we gather data about whether it's appropriate or fitting or it's going to be useful rather than saying we like it or not. And that's going to be our defined process. Using simulation to iterate is i think the highest value thing i think one of the things i would advocate for groups that are developing protected innovation if you haven't already done that is is just go steal one from somewhere don't spend your time developing protected intubation pathways uh within your own group instead steal one from somewhere and then use simulation to modify it in a way that suits your environment you're much more likely to 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 land on a product that i think is better for your department, it works for your department because it will be proven within the confines of the system that you are practicing in. Yeah, so so I mean, I think there's a lot of learnings. One is 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 using it to iterate. Two is is using it to decide our best team protecting strategy. Uh, three is is communication is hugely important. So land on some sort of simple modality that works for your group. Uh, and then lastly, the thing that we're trying to land on is is not having a variety of huge options for 
for physicians to to use drugs or post intubation sedation. You know, I think the least options here is the best, and it's the safest, and it gets to this communication um, problem that we've been talking about before. You know, we should we should have uh, uh, kit A, kit B, kit C for intubation with medications. You know, maybe one's ketamine, maybe one's propofol, and maybe one's an old school drug just in case we run out of propofol infusions and ketamine. Right? Maybe we're using something like midazolam or uh, we develop a, a procedure with automate. Um, whatever the end point is, I think we need to simplify things as much as possible. Um, and I think that's going to go a long way to making protected intubations as slick and as clean as, as we can. Great pearls from both of you. So let's move on to the second group. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, protected code blues. Like I said, very a lot of overlap between the two, but slightly different. Mike, do you want to start us off on uh, talking a little bit about some of how you guys have uh, started to approach protected code blues from uh, from what you're doing in terms of the simulations? Yeah. So I mean, with protected code blues, uh, I mean, I think it's a shift in paradigm for most of us that you know our goal is necessary to protect the staff as a first thing, right? think bringing other members on board, like even EMS and paramedics, and I think Eric Hanel is working on that as well, uh, that these you know cases are going to be much different than our normal cold blues, right? Uh, I think we've looked at, at least at St. Joe's, a couple of new barrier protective techniques uh, for intubation of these, uh, these patients with without CPR. I think it's important uh, and a big shift that we teach staff and, and physicians that, you know, this is a different time, right? We, uh, we need to protect our team, uh, first and foremost. I think it's a little bit of a, a big shift for a lot of people. We've gone through the process and we're, you know, dis- disseminating that information uh, as quickly as we can, but it definitely is, is, a, is something different for most of our staff. And uh, some of them are taking a bit of t- longer time to kind of realize that. I think it's just, you know, basically getting the information out there and, and simulating it and explaining to them how it's different from from our normal practice, right? That's the the biggest thing at this point. What what would you say, Mike? Just to add on to that, what would you say are some of the the big differences you've noticed from the protected versus the traditional way of running a code blue? Can you add a couple of pearls there? Well, I, I think the biggest thing is realizing that you know the fertility sometimes of prolonged resuscitations, right? You know, one of our very first protected code blue was a a young guy who had a STEMI. So, you know, the nurses were a bit shocked that the resuscitation didn't go on for half an hour, an hour kind of thing, right? Holding CPR while you're intubating, right? CPR is not necessarily, you know, the best thing when no one's in PPE and stuff, right? Rushing into things, taking our time, donning our PPE, right? So these are all kind of things that a lot of, you know, peripheral staff members are not used to because we're used to rushing in in code blues, right? So just taking that time to really protect yourself first, I think a lot of uh, our staff are not really necessarily used to that yet. For sure. Chris, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, just add on the sort of protecting our staff um, angle and knowing that the PPE we have is also rapidly changing. You know, one day we have one kind of face mask and the next day that's run out and we're trying a different kind of face mask. And, you know, this pandemic has really been punctuated by the way that there's been sharing of worldwide information and worldwide strategies. And, you know, a a doc came in a couple of days ago with a new visor that was 3D printed that had been originally developed by someone 
across the globe who was ahead of us in the pandemic response saying, you know, when we ran out of face shields, one of our guys invented this new 3D printed one. And so he brought those in and you don't want to be trialing that some new kind of PPE when you're in an actual protected code blue for the first time. Like, is that new piece of equipment going to stand up to the rigors of CPR or chest compressions in the moment? And so running these simulations gives us an opportunity to try new equipment and make sure that it is going to protect your staff when we get in and are doing an actual protected code blue. For sure. Because, you know, we see a lot of stuff on social media and on papers and whatever about, you know, those intubating boxes and using plastic tarps and whatnot, uh, kind of going into the same line as what you're saying, Chris, is making sure that, yes, they sound really cool and, and sexy, but also trying them out actually in the simulation setting, making sure it works and making sure that uh, everyone's comfortable with it, I think, are, are great uh, things that uh, simulation is directly responsible for. So, I agree with you there for sure. Kevin, yeah, you brought up the box and the sheet. Uh, we've actually been simulating both those processes. Uh, you know, we found some interesting findings, uh, which we're hoping to, to get out soon. Uh, you know, with current diminishing supplies of PPE, I think uh, most of us want the maximum uh, ability to protect ourselves and our staff. So, you know, I think some of these things out there uh, may have a bit more utility than we think. So I think we have been looking at these things and there, there are some promising things, at least from what our, our simulations have shown within our group. Uh, and we're hoping to, to get that out there a bit more. I mean, they do, they do protect you with an, another barrier, right, to aerosols and droplets. So, uh, and they surprisingly work quite well uh, within our simulation. So... Yeah, for sure. Does anyone have, actually have anything to add to the uh, TARP or the box, especially at uh, Hamilton Health site? I think um, in our trials with the, the box, it's important uh, to think about how difficult, difficult it will be to make adjustments, patient positioning, how challenging it will be to get things like suction uh, in and out as well. And I think some of the limitations with early prototypes are just around mobility, but also uh, removing a Glidescope stylet. Uh, you need a pretty high ceiling on there to be able to get that out effectively. And the box really just forces the RT to reach around to remove the stylet and to attach the patient to the vent um, rather than the MD uh, being in the way. So I think there are certainly some limitations to the box, um, but it does seem to provide. Um, quite a bit more kind of droplet coverage at least. Yeah, I think the the challenge is that uh, all this stuff is new. And so there's a lot of engineering that's going on. And, and unfortunately, without a lot of valid studies showing what is this and what is that and what works and what doesn't. Kudos to you guys for setting these up and making sure that we try so that so that we know what's safe and what's not uh, before we start using it. Thanks. Thank you guys for making our institutions and our docs and our RTs and our nurses all safe. So that's that's great. I think I want to go back to those virtual simulations because I think that's a new concept that we haven't really been doing ever before, at least from my experience. And I love simulation. So I think Mike, you brought it up. So I'm going to give you the honors to speak first on it. So what are your thoughts on... So tell me a little bit about these virtual simulations and how this can be useful for our healthcare workers. Eric actually started this and myself and Dr. Trotter, we basically knew from the get-go that we're going to have a shortage in supplies and PPE and running in situ 
simulations in the ED, maybe limited to the space, supplies, and really having the staff around to do it, right? Uh, I mean, before this, Dr. Handel was running monthly simulations just as Alex was at HHS uh, at St. Joseph Hospital. Um, and certainly during downtimes, that worked well. But right from the beginning, we realized that, you know, getting people together may be an issue as well. So we actually just, like I said, how we started was we taped a, a simulation with just, you know, people in there. Uh, how we, we ran it with, you know, what we're going to do for for the COVID intubation and ran the video uh, non-scripted and then basically taped it, showed our physicians within a, a Zoom meeting because our formal meetings were canceled by then. Uh, via the virtual meeting, we were able to sh demonstrate what we're doing now and then basically discuss and go, go through with uh, different staff members after they've watched the video to see you know, what their thoughts were, kind of go through the correct process to do it. So, I mean, we learned as well from doing it uh, from other staff members, how, uh, you know, their concerns and, and questions, of course, and all the things as we, uh, as we started that. We did that from the get-go within, what, a week, in, a week into this or a couple of days into this. What we also found surprising was that members who normally would not really want to participate in Insight True Sims were actually quite interested. Uh, I think it also, you know, is less intimidating, right, in terms of the actual process. Since then, though, I mean, in, virtual sim has its limitations, right? You can't get your hands in there. You don't, you know, walk through the physical space and, you know, donning and doffing, of course, are all issues as well. So since then, the virtual sim is really to disseminate the information to get it out there early. We've now uh, gone through and walked physicians and staff through what it would be uh, when we have the time in the emergency. So I think the virtual simulation is an easy way to get information out there quickly to a larger audience, which allows you to then follow up with kind of in-person and smaller uh, situations as well, right? So, I mean, there are limitations, right? You, you know, the physicians can't get their hands on the box. They can't get their hands on the plastic sheet when they watch it. So uh, we've actually had, you know, those models set up and have physicians try those models themselves and give us an opinion on what they think. And I think that's where we're gonna proceed uh, based on consensus. So uh, the virtual simulation, I think the benefits are certainly getting information out there quickly to a wider audience. And it also, I think, is less intimidating uh, than an actual insight sim. I think most of us probably wanna know about this because it's certainly an important part of a practice during this pandemic. For sure, okay. Alex, can you tell us a little bit about the virtual simulations uh, uh, that you guys are doing at uh, Hamilton Health Sciences? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the uh, really great things that has come out of all of this has been the amount of collaboration that's been going on both locally and across the country. So once we had gone through our iterations with practicing our protected intubation and coming up with a protocol, um, I had reached out to Eric Handel to see what they had been doing over at St. Joe's because I had heard that they were doing some virtual simulation and I wanted to get a sense of how they were um, doing that logistically. Um, and I, I totally agree with Mike. I think it's a great way to disseminate information to a pretty broad group while also maintaining some physical distancing and not bringing a bunch of your staff together in the department when they don't need to be there. Um, I think it really is important to have your protocol um, pretty uh, solid by the time you bring it to the group. Um, we, we had gone through a bunch of iterations at that point. And so we felt like this was a product we could bring out and kind of answer questions confidently. It's really 
really helpful to um, just debrief the video and talk about what went well, what didn't go well, answer any questions. So I think it really is a good forum for that kind of discussion. And I think it allowed us to um, generate consensus around what our plan was going to be with drugs, because as Sean mentioned earlier, now is not the time to have a lot of um, individual variation in practice. Um, and historically, that has been true for intubations, especially. And so now I think we are able to generate a lot of consensus amongst the group of this is what our plan is going to be so that we can offload people cognitively when it comes time for that high stress situation. And I also totally agree with Mike that um, there has been a lot more buy-in to simulation uh, during this time period. And the virtual sim is a great uh, low stakes way to get people involved um, where they feel more comfortable um, asking questions um, before they actually go in to do the real thing. Uh, because I think practicing in the department is a lot more valuable once people have a pretty clear idea of what the protocol should be. It's a very novel idea. And for all our listeners, this is an amazing initiative. And I'm pretty sure that Eric would love for all of you guys to use it for your own institution to make sure that uh, all of our practicing clinicians as well as our healthcare workers are prepared before uh, they go into the, the real fray. Now, I, I think just to not to dwell too much on the virtual simulations, but can you tell us, a, maybe Mike, can you tell us a little bit about how, what you filmed and, and like what kind of specifics that people, if they were going to start a virtual simulation curriculum into their, into other people's shops, what did you guys do to film this? And, and so can you give us a little bit of the, those more of our granular details about how you get this started? Sure, sure. So, I mean, uh, we filmed it at the beginning of this whole kind of, you know, protected PPE intubation. Uh, so we didn't really give the doctor uh, or the nurses much details about how to do it. We, other than the donning and and and, uh, and doffing issue, right? Uh, we did it in an isolated, you know, uh, negative pressure room with an ante room to kind of see what the communication would be like. We wanted to basically do it raw as a first time, first time thing. So we didn't want it. We wanted to make it so that you know you make errors, you really don't know what's going on which allowed the video that we ended up disseminating to the group of what can really happen. Uh, and then we, you know, the two of us or three of us would, uh, would do the sims with either a group of doctors or four or five of them or two of them, whoever can log in at certain times and ran it through them and, uh, and gave them the feedback, have their feedback on what they saw and, you know, basically tried to teach them the issues we had at the debriefing in terms of, you know, communication issues, uh, donning doffing issues, uh, you know, bag valve mass issues, things like that, right? Uh, limited, you know, resources in terms of limited people in the room, all those things. So we basically filmed a video where the two physicians, myself involved, really did not have much information at that time about uh, intubation in COVID patients. So it was realistic. Uh, and we wanted physicians to see the mistakes and see you know, things that happen, right? Uh, like a real sim. So we started by really just filming a video of how we would have done it uh, at the current state. I mean, things have changed over the last two or three weeks and uh, we've modified numerous things since then. That's great. Alex? So we had a pretty similar process. Um, we filmed, it was myself actually doing the uh, simulation. And so uh, we had several people filming just with iPhones and then putting it together and putting the video on YouTube. When we did the Zoom meetings, we had, it was myself facilitating. 
and there wasn't any voiceover to the video at all. So I would um, pause it and chime in with key points or highlight mistakes that we had made um, during the video. And then afterwards, similar to what Mike said, we would just run through it and debrief it. And I tried to break it up into kind of three phases, the preparation phase, the procedural phase, and then the phase after the procedure, so post-procedure, and just talk about um, specific issues during each one of those phases. Um, and I think the other important thing to do uh, is to circulate your protocol ahead of the virtual sim so that all the staff are familiar with it. And so that this isn't like totally new information, it's more they can see it put into practice and ask questions that they have when they read through the documents. Um, so I think that was is probably one of the more important parts of it as well. We didn't um, put up the video onto YouTube where it would be accessible for other people because um, it does involve mistakes using this as a reference tool that they can just sit down and watch thinking that this is the way forward. I think it really does require a facilitator um, to walk people through it, to debrief and make sure that the key points and, and key mistakes are highlighted. For sure. Thanks for this. And I think a lot of our listeners are going to take this and say, this is an amazing idea and they're going to try to integrate it because you guys are right. I mean, everyone's busy and it's very hard because of the physical distancing that we're doing to get signups uh, to do a lot of in-situ sim. And like uh, Chris Hyde had mentioned, it is tough because if you don't have the physical space to do it as well, since we are getting busy, that we are going to need to find other venues to perform and to learn uh, and continuously make ourselves better so that we can prepare for this pandemic. For our last question, and I, this is for everybody, and so I'm going to have uh, the opportunity for everyone to speak is any last minute thoughts or comments about simulation and some any other pearls that you think that our listeners should listen to or just other wise comments that you guys want to drop for us before we finish today? So for anyone who wants to have an effective sim program, I think really focus on uh, your debriefing skills, on facilitating a, a fulsome conversation after any simulation. That's where the real learning happens. You can run through any sim. It doesn't matter if it's done the, if the clinical care in the sim is done perfectly or if people are tripping over each other or if the communication is good or bad, the real learning comes after the fact when you have that discussion about how did you feel, how did it go, how was the communication, where are the gaps that we can fix. And so the best bang for your buck if you're trying to prepare for sim, if you're trying to improve your skills is working on your debriefing, your discussion, your group facilitation skills so that you can have that very uh, fulsome conversation afterwards that gives you the real meat of the simulation. The key to all this during this crisis, you know, in this time of, uh, of, of concerns for everyone is really doing the simulation to uh, prepare us for the unexpected, right? I think we're all kind of in a situation where we don't know what to expect with these patients. And I think trying to get everyone on board, RTs, RNs, you know, your whole team, uh, which is now a smaller team, right, compared to what we usually work with, it's, it's important. I think the simulation itself has certainly taken a huge, uh, it's moved up quite a bit, right, in terms of educational buy-in from, from staff, right? And we all have something vested now. You know, we want to do this right because we're protecting ourselves as well. So I think it's uh, it's actually uh, you know, in a sense, good that we've had this, right? Because I think now people realize that practice simulation is uh, is key to keeping yourself safe. So if anything, I think it's important to do 
and do often? I think that as people are looking to implement some sort of simulation at their center, it's important not to reinvent the wheel. There's lots of expertise out there. There's lots of cases out there. EMSimCases.com is a great repository of cases, including multiple cases about COVID um, that are set up for in-situ simulation. So I think um, reaching out to uh, people who have some experience in the area um, to learn from each other and collaborate is the way forward with this rather than trying to just start something um, totally brand new. And you don't need a bunch of um, expensive or fancy high-fidelity equipment to do effective in-situ simulation. Um, really just walking through the steps uh, and identifying the equipment available can be important. Um, we've started just using an intubating task trainer in lieu of the, the high-fidelity mannequin sometimes because really it's just the process of going through all the steps that's important. You don't need a lot of feedback from the mannequin. I'm going to double down on uh, Alex's endorsement of EM SIM cases as one of the uh, editors there. We have published a number of COVID cases and we'll continue to publish them. If people are looking for something that's just plug plug and play, they can get a case from there. Um, We have cases that are for an ambulatory care setting to a a critical care setting to now protected code blue cases. And there will be more coming in the future that they can just pluck off there and we'll help with uh, some debriefing guides and other resources as well. Yeah, I guess what I would say is that I think simulation is an inherent, well, it is an inherently human process. We need to see the value both from a latent safety threat, this is how the environment needs to be modified, and this is how we get better lens, and I think that's great. But we can't forget that I think simulation has a huge role in normalizing what's happening, in bringing our teams together, in hearing each other out and allowing our team members to feel like, you know, that they've had an opportunity to voice their concerns, have a say in how we do things in our department and give them a perception and the reality that they're driving this process, that this isn't a bunch of people that are sitting in a room, but that their feedback is being incorporated in a meaningful way and that they have control over their clinical space in a time where control is so difficult to to have, to get, um, to understand. And so simulation, I believe, goes beyond what we learn. It goes beyond the mechanics of what we're doing in the room. And it's like a profoundly human element. I guess kind of how I would anchor this is that some of the best performing teams in the world are that almost exclusively because they practice. This goes from like astronaut teams all the way down to the teams that are changing tires on a Formula One car. We've all recognized in in high performance fields outside of medicine that practicing with a team is beneficial and useful and that there's important human elements there. And I think we need to take that in and recognize its value in medicine as well. Thanks again, guys, for your time and your amazing work on the simulations at uh, both of our major sites in Hamilton. Stay tuned for our listeners. We are going to have a pediatric simulations podcast with uh, Dr. James Lung and his team in the next upcoming episodes. Just to let you know, amazing for phone med, free open access medical education for the EMSIM cases. We'll have that in our show notes. Please check that out.
for kind of plug and play, like Chris said, cases for the COVID-related simulations for protected code blue and protected intubations. Thanks again, guys, for coming on. Hope uh, everyone stays safe. Keep doing what you guys are doing. Talk to you guys later.